One afternoon when I was about 10, my dad drove me to get a pie for lunch as a treat. As his big red ute pulled into the car park in front of the bakery, we saw a man and woman yelling at each other. Stay in the car, my dad said, roughly pulling up the handbrake and getting out. The rusty door whined and banged shut behind him. I sat still and looked forward through the dusty front windscreen as though I was watching television with muffled sound. The yelling got louder and the woman raised her arms, gesturing, and the man raised his arms and shoved her hard. My father reached them in a few measured strides and it was as if I saw him transform. He became tall and strong, transcending his daggy three-quarter cargo pants and floppy leather sandals. I saw the woman had also transformed, but in the opposite way. She looked tiny and terrified. I think she was clutching her face. With one hand, Dad reached into his pocket and pulled out his badge, and with the other keeping his palm open and down, he gestured for the man to take a step back. The situation de-escalated quickly. The three of them stood there, my father with his legs planted wide and firm, the other two shifting their weight while he took something down in his notebook and they left. Later, I would learn that the woman didn't want to make a complaint and refused further police assistance. Dad waited until they were well on their way to the train station across the road before he looked back at me in the ute, beckoning for me to come out. I fought the urge to run to him, brimming with questions, my curiosity about this adult occurrence making me feel naughty. We went into the bakery, Tell the lady which kind of pie you would like, he said in front of the hot box, his hand on my shoulder. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. It's me, Emma, back again, this time with the wonderfully talented Bree Lee, freelance writer, author, founding editor of the Interview Project and print magazine, Hot Chicks with Big Brains. Bree's newly released memoir, Eggshell Skull, is receiving a lot of attention. The book follows Bree during her time as a judge's associate in Queensland, witnessing the institutional injustices faced by women, children and minorities in Australia's courtrooms. It is also a devastating and self-scouring coming-of-age story, as Brie grapples with her own experience of sexual abuse and the frustrations and triumphs of sitting on the other side of the courtroom. Brie, a massive congratulations and thank you for being here. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. You have a lot going on right now. Mm, yes. How has it been? It's been a massive <laughs> couple of months. Yeah, huge. Um, I had really hoped that the book would, would mean a lot to some people you know, like a sort of quality over quantity kind of impact. Um, that's what I really was aiming for. Um, but it's just like blown it out of the water. I've, yeah, I just found out yesterday that it's on its third reprint. Um, and I have at least one or two events between now and like Christmas every week. Um, yeah, it's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. And yeah. what did you even fathom any of this because... I know that you, you quit law mm. and you just dove into writing. Yeah. Did you expect any of this? No, definitely not. 
Definitely not. Um, and I'm, I, I quit law and started writing because I love it. Um, and I hope that I write until I die. Um, and so for it to also see some measure of success is just like a sort of cherry on top of my really deep gratitude to be able to just do what I love. And I mean, when you originally did jump ship, mm. such a big decision. I mean, how did you stay afloat um, before all of the success mm. and while you were doing all the hard work? Um, yeah, that's sort of like a double-sided question really as well, because it was during that time that the trial was happening. Right. And so it was very much, um, yeah, in a, in a way I feel like 2016 and 2017 were just survival years. Um, but I'd saved, I mean, to be pragmatic, I'd saved money from my job as a judge's associate, like as a sort of safety net, I suppose, to going to writing full time. Um, and yeah, just, uh, it's, it's like the advice I give, um, when I do freelancing workshops, sometimes you just start small and try and write for better and better places that pay a little bit better and get bigger interviews. And I don't know, you just, you truck through like you would in any job. Annabelle Crabb has this great way of talking about how your first day as a journalist is always the hardest because you're a shit writer and no one wants to talk to you and nobody knows who you are, but that it it really does get easier as you go. And the more success you see, the more success you, you can see. Yeah, it's, it gets easier every month. And you did, in 2016, you landed the Cat Muscat mm. Fellowship as well. Oh, I remember receiving that email and knowing that my entire life had just pivoted directions. Right. Um, until then, I had not fully backed myself to quit law. I was still sort of scoping out the job market, still, I don't know, just deciding if it was something I was capable of or could justify trying my hand at. Um, and then I got the Cat Musket Fellowship and off the back of it got emails from publishers wanting to see the manuscript. Um, and then off the back of those emails, I got an agent. Then the agent turned that interest into like 12 publisher interviews. And I was like, all of what I have now can be mapped and tracked back to winning that fellowship at that exact point in time. Right. Yep. And then Eggshell Skull, obviously, yes. published yes. and blowing up. Um, <laughs> although I have to say when I when it was put in my hands, it came at a really bad time because I was going to see my family. They're from rural New South Wales and they were travelling to Newcastle. And yep. I was like, great opportunity to see mum and dad. Yep. So I took the book with me on the train and started reading. But by the time I got there... I was so invested, uh, but I kept, like, sneaking away to read more. So, like, thank you for interrupting <laughs> my wholesome family time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, one of the most illuminating and problematic insights of the novel is that you speak of the justice system, this thing that we all want to believe is inherently standardised uh, mm. and fair mm. and objective. Um, it's something that you sort of see as being subject to all sorts of inequities and mm. biases, uh, and in particular you write about how different it looked depending mm. on which town you went to in mm. Queensland as a judge's associate? Mm. So um, part of my job as a judge's associate was to go on what they call circuit, which is where, um, you know, Australia is so big. We have a lot of small regional towns, regional centres where people deserve to have and have the right to have their matters heard um, in the area in which they live and to be judged by their peers, but not many of these places have populations that can sustain a judge sitting there permanently. Um, so 
they send judges from major cities, i.e. myself and my judge, out to these places for two weeks at a time, and they call it circuit. So I worked for a judge who did almost exclusively criminal law, and we went on the most circuit of any judge and associate teams in the district court in Queensland that year. And, <clears throat> and you arrive in these towns and some of them have really bad reputations for, um, they just, they just won't find anyone guilty. Um, and then you arrive in the town and you see a courthouse that looks physically very different when we have an overwhelming body of evidence that points to, um, you know, what kind of dock, what the dock is made of, if it's glass or if it's wood, if it's at the centre in the front of the courtroom or if it's at the back of the courtroom, all of these things, for example, affecting jury prejudice toward the defendant. We have all these situations where um, complainants who are particularly at risk or um, anxious and nervous can get permission to give evidence via video link so they don't have to come into the courtroom. But these different courtrooms have different sort of audiovisual setups and some of them are really crap and it makes... Um, it really hard for a jury to empathise with the evidence of the complainant that they're hearing. Every town we went to had a really different vibe of the thing in the courthouse, you know, how the local cops treated certain matters, how the registrar felt about certain matters. Different towns, some of them were more or less racist than others. Different towns were more or less sexist than others. Not only was there a huge difference in justice between a major city like Brisbane and a regional area like Roma, but there was also a huge difference between Roma and Gladstone, or Gladstone and Bundaberg, or Bundaberg and Gympie. It is incredibly frustrating that people think that the legal system and the courts system and the judiciary is a standardised, justice-is-blind situation when we know that, for example, um, you know, criminal law is legislated by state. So you can do the exact same thing in New South Wales compared to Queensland and you might be found guilty in one place and not guilty in the other. But to then even have so much difference between cities in the same state, it's a, like, it's, it's a farce. It's very frustrating. Your own case, it took more than two years yes. to go to trial. Yep. So two years, two plus whatever years of investigation culminating in a two-day trial. Oh my goodness. And that two two years is considered like on the shorter end of like right. what a, a reasonable wait is, which right. is inexcusable. And I mean, what kind of emotional stamina, how did you manage to get through that? A huge part of this book, well, I hoped um, what I really set out to write was that um, I had like every tool in my belt that a complainant could hope to have, um, highly educated you know, able-bodied white woman, um, but also literally a lawyer, um, had incredibly supportive partner, very supportive family and friends, financial stability. Um, and I still nearly didn't make it through that time of my life. And I do not know how we expect women who don't have everything I had to make it through something like that. Um, the length of these investigations is not okay. They don't need to be that long. It's just that we don't prioritise and adequately resource the people who work on them. Um, but more than it, the real tough thing is that it's it's not like you start and they tell you it's going to be two years. You start and they say, we don't know how long it's going to be. 
And so you can't even like, you can't even look at a point in the future and know that that's the light at the end of the tunnel. It's just this constantly delayed, adjourned, protracted hell. And you have no idea if you're six months or another three years away from the end point. And it's incredibly difficult not to just put your whole life on hold. You really have to fight the urge to, you know, like sort of make plans or like just think about your career trajectory or I don't know, like when you want to go on holidays, like it's really hard to just keep living when you don't have an end point in sight. Right. A lot of the book and the first half of the book is you recounting trials Mm. that you were at. And there was one that stood out to you Mm. as being something that was more or less a tipping point in your own narrative. Mm. You speak about wanting the relief Mm. that that man felt. Yeah, so by this stage it was like towards the end of my year as an associate and I had been asking myself for quite a while whether or not I should sort of make a complaint or even just tell like my family, for example. Um, And then I was in Warwick and I saw a man read out loud to the courtroom. It was the first time I'd ever seen, one, it's the first time I'd ever seen a male complainant Um, and two, it was the first time I'd ever seen someone read out aloud to the court their victim impact statement. So a victim impact statement is an opportunity for a complainant basically to just feel like their voice is being heard in what is overwhelmingly a process where they are disempowered and silenced, um, or where they can only tell their story in a very strange, um, specific legal way. So he read out his victim impact statement and I just remember sitting there in the courtroom Um, and being really just hit with how much relief he felt. Um, And then the kicker was that this is like one of only two parts in the book I still get really emotional thinking about. Um, The kicker was that when he stepped off, like down from the witness box from reading his statement, he sort of like fell into his wife's arms and I just remember thinking to myself, like, I ha- I think I have people who would catch me. Um, and, yeah, I just knew, I knew from then that I had to, I had to do something about it because the relief and the lightness he spoke of was, like, just, that's what I longed for. That's what anyone longs for, the closure and the ability to, to, to move on and not let something that was done to you form such a huge part of your identity. Um, and now that you've seen the law from both sides, mm. yes, like a journey to <laughs> <laughs> Um, what changes are you hoping, both in attitude and maybe even in legislation, that oh. your book will bring? Lordy, where do I start? Um, so what's really awesome is that after the Four Corners report into Saxon Mullins and Luke Lazarus's case, New South Wales, the morning after, announced a review into consent legislation. That's all well and good, but the legislation is sort of the final tiny tip of the iceberg of the problem. And a lot of the submissions that this commission, this inquiry have received are basically from people saying changing the legislation is not enough. Um, And so I have meetings coming up in Queensland to try and get them to announce a review, but not just of the legislation how this epidemic is being treated at every level that the government is responsible for. 
So what I'll be pushing for in Queensland is a three-step review where the three points in a complainant's journey are looked at. So I talk about the first step being the first point of contact. So when a complainant picks up the phone or walks into a cop shop, how they are treated, the kind of stuff that's said to them, um, how those first responders are like trained and resourced to deal with a sexual assault, either adult sex or child sex offending um, specifically. Just everything around that first point of contact, um, because currently in Queensland it is abysmal. In Victoria, for example, they have specialist departments to deal with sex offences, sex offence, you know, complainants. Um, and in Queensland, they just don't. And the result is that, you know, I was told that my matter was taking a while because the investigating officer had murders to deal with. And I've received an email in the meantime from a reader who now lives in Victoria, um, but made a complaint about um, an alleged rape in Queensland and felt really supported and backed and respected and in control when she was dealing with the Victorian police. But when she got transferred across to Queensland, because it had to be prosecuted or investigated there because, you know, allegedly it happened in Queensland, she pulled out um, after 28 days. She waited four weeks and she was told that the guy, the, the investigator hadn't gotten back to her because he was investigating murders. I do remember that being, as a reader, some of the most frustrating parts of the novel because you're dealing with inadequate or uncaring or apathetic yeah. police people. Yeah, absolutely. And I... I um, yeah, I there was <laughs> worse stuff in real life that I didn't put in the book right? because I didn't want that cop to get fired or, uh, I don't know, I, I don't hold him personally responsible because he is overworked and under-resourced and has never received training to be right. able to deal with someone like me. So I don't know how we can expect individuals to to make up for what is overwhelmingly a systematic issue. Which leads me to the second point out of the three steps, which is the delay. So there's a legal maxim that is that says justice delayed is justice denied. And I really believe that. And I believe the current delays that are deemed acceptable for sex offending, either as children or as adults, um, is, is pathetic and infuriating. The only reason two years is considered low on the average, well, there are a few reasons. One of them is that defence barristers make shit tons of money from running sex offence trials. The average rate of guilty pleas for a criminal um, charge is about 70%, and that drops to 30% if it's a sex offence. Um, and if a defendant has enough money to brief counsel, they can delay it so, so, so much, and they will, because the longer they delay it, the more likely the complainant is to just fall away because they are not supported. Um and so we need to look at that delay. For example, in Queensland, I know the DPP has these sort of guidelines of like X number of months between when a charge is laid and when they have to have presented an indictment in the district court. And it's like that's a months long process that if this matter was taken as seriously as it needs to be, it could be much shorter. And if it was resourced and trained accordingly. Um, so yeah, that's the second of the three steps. And the third step is like what happens at court, you know, the way we are allowing, um, people to veto jury members who get called the actual legislation, the process of cross-examination. That's, that's just the third and final step that needs to be looked at. And so what I'm hoping is that in Queensland, we've got a really incredible government at the moment who have a really strong track record for legislative updates, um, and for 
gendered issues. Um, and so I am hoping um, to to sort of elbow my way in mm-hmm. there a little. That that third step seemed to have like some subsections to it. Oh Jesus! All the <laughs> all the steps have fucking subsections. <laughs> like you checked all the last yeah. things yeah. in the third one. Yeah. And one of those being cross-examination. Yes. Which you speak about in the novel and you've spoken about being particularly traumatic. Mm. Um, and the other being jury selection. You've got sections in the book where you talk about the process of jury selection mm. and how potentially unfair that yep. can be. Yep. So um, one of the most frustrating parts is what they call preemptive or preemptory challenges. In Queensland, uh, both prosecution and defence are allowed to just veto, without giving any reason, eight names that I would pull out of the barrel. And they make those veto calls once they have um, basically clocked the, the person. So, And they also get the name and the profession and, like, the postcode. Overwhelmingly, I saw defence barristers using up a lot of their challenges, if not all of them, and they would use them for women and young people. This is for sex offence trials. Um, people think that it's a matter of fairness that, like, both sides of, you know, both prosecution and defence are allowed challenges, but all of the research shows that prosecution barely use this. It's not a situation where prosecution are arguing, like, for the complainant and defence are arguing for the defendant. Prosecution are there to serve the court. They are their duty to the court comes before their duty to the complainant. They're there to see justice done, whereas the defence barrister is there to serve the interests of his client. Um, And so in Victoria, for example, they have been like, oh, hey, wait a minute, that's kind of fucked up, Um, and they dropped it down to four preemptory challenges. In the UK, they've got rid of preemptory challenges altogether. Oh, right. Yeah, because it's dumb. Um, It just... (laughs) It's so frustrating um, how obviously it affects things. One sort of subtlety that I want to talk about for just a minute is something I wrote about in an article for Crikey, actually, where because it is completely and utterly illegal for jury members ever to discuss the contents of their deliberations, anyone who claims to know what kind of prejudicial effect jury makeups have needs like that's that's a claim that I will uh, be suspicious about because we can never know reasons what I think is more interesting is that defense barristers veto women and young people because of preconceptions that they have about what women and young people will think on a jury because the DPP, the Department of Public Prosecutions, know that the, de- that the defence team will do that. When the DPP get handed a brief of evidence, they are wondering how likely that complainant is to be successful at trial with a jury who the defence team have had veto challenges for. That makes them more likely to dismiss a certain type of complainant not because of what the jury actually do, which is sort of unknowable, but because of like sort of all of these steps of people who presume that sort of bias. And that also then trickles right back down to the beginning when the cops are taking someone's statement, where the cops are sitting there thinking, okay, it wasn't a stranger who jumped out of the bushes, they didn't have a weapon, you don't have any physical injuries. We know what kind of jury is going to hear this, and we know 
whether or not it will be successful according to that type of jury. And so we exercise our discretion either to continue or discontinue this investigation. And so the trouble, my argument basically, is that allowing juries to be affected and stacked in that way by the defence counsel has a sort of flow back, trickle down effect through all of the steps of an investigation and charges and trial being done. All the way to the complainant themselves who's being told that. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing here. Yeah. And what's really, yeah. And what's really frustrating is that sometimes I'll talk to people and be like, you know, the legal industry is a bit sexist and they'll be like, I can, I can imagine that, you know, like the barrister, the bar seems like a bit of a boys club, you know, Mm. mostly there are men judges. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, it's fraternity, like, cool, get that. But then when I talk about the actual justice system being sexist, people get very confused and they get very defensive. And I think it's fucking absurd to think that the people who are working that industry, who are sexist, have no effect on the way that system is run and the way justice is done. Those things are inextricably connected. Right. You've been so busy Mm. doing so many things, including this. Mm. Have you had a time, any time, to pick up another book other than your own? To what are read? You reading? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good question. Um, I am currently about three quarters of the way through Beautiful Revolutionary by Laura Elizabeth Woolett. That book is a work of freaky genius. It's yeah. Crazy. It's freaky, real freaky, real Not genius. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Loving it. Loving it. Um, what else? Oh, I'm doing a lot of reading for my master's. Um, what are you doing a, a master's? I uh, got a scholarship at UQ to do a creative writing master's so oh, that I can write my next book. And I'm horrifically behind. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Uh, what yeah. is next? Yeah. Um, mm, well, mm, 95% sure my next book will be a collection of personal essays. Oh, cool. Um, but realistically, um, what I've just sort of learned is that there might be television stuff happening about Eggshell Skull. Um, so that will, uh, probably if that goes ahead, I'll do a bunch of writing for that. And I've been for a while interested in, in screenwriting and just seeing what that world is like, because basically it's just allows you to potentially amplify the audience for your story by like a few extra zeros on the Mm -hmm. end. Um, so we'll see what happens there, but the next book will be a collection of personal essays. Um, and it's... A lot more work than I anticipated. I think I underestimated how much just background knowledge and research I had already done about legal issues for Eggshell Skull. Like I was already like an expert at those topics and those themes. Um, But now starting a new personal essay collection about a topic in which I am not, you know, like qualified to practice, Mm -hmm. et cetera, is like it's a lot of work. And also it's just that thing where just because you've written one book does not mean you know how to write a book. <laughs> like you go right back to the beginning and you're like, oh, fuck, how do I do this? What am I doing? Et cetera. Right. And actually I, that reminds me of another thing that I was curious about when I was reading it. Um, just like the detail and how vivid some of those scenes are in those courtrooms. And sometimes yeah. you're referencing notes that you were taking. Yeah. Were those notes that you were taking because you were on the job or were they notes that you were taking because you like needed to take down what yeah, you were seeing. Good question. Part of the role of an associate is to take meticulous minutes. Right. And so much of the court process is recorded and transcribed and everything is on the record. But what I felt after about one, maybe two weeks of working there was that nobody was bearing witness. 
And there is a big difference between making sure as part of your job that everything is like recorded and on the record and actually paying attention, paying some fucking attention. And so um, for the whole year, I had my official associate notebook um, and notes and minutes, et cetera. But then I also had my own notebook, um, which was like sketches, you know, like I had a little sketch of like the barrister's shiny dollar sign cufflinks, um, direct quotes, just like feelings or responses I had. Um, It was, yeah, all like contemporaneous thoughts that occurred to me. Um, And it was just a folder full of material at the end of the year. Um, And I was taking those notes before. I definitely did not. While I was working that job, I did not like sort of have the plan that I would write a book about it. It was just, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I really couldn't. Um, And by the end of the year, I had a folder full of this material with what I just felt like with these patterns. You know, why is it always mum's new boyfriend? Why is it always blah, blah, blah? Why are they always cross-examined like this when they, you know, are not supposed to be able to blah, blah, blah? Um, yeah. And then that was when the Cat Musket Fellowship was like announced as being like open for applications and you had to have like a new sort of project or idea that you wanted to work on. And I was like, oh no, I don't have any ideas. (laughs) And then I was just like at my laptop and on my desk was this fat fucking folder of notes. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe there's something there. (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually, and speaking of all those trials and the patterns, that you saw. One thing that does break the pattern with almost humour, um, it's a kind of uh, bitter humour, is, um, and I actually applaud you for this, like when reading it, because what is such a heavy topic and could be really exhausting to read, mm. you manage to not be voyeuristic or gratuitous. In fact, sometimes you are even funny. Thank you. And that makes it so readable. Thank you very much. Um, but one of those scenes that sticks out to me is is the chickpea oh, trial. <laughs> fucking chickpeas. I'll never get over that. I'll never, ever get over that. Seeing a courtroom, being allocated a big courtroom so that we could fit all of those counsel and all of those press, like the, the journalists, for fucking chickpeas. And it was... Oh, my God. I will be angry about that forever. <laughs> so for our listeners, yeah. this was on the back of you... <sighs> Witnessing all of these other trials, these sexual assault trials. Heinous. Like, the most (laughs) heinous thing that you can imagine ever happening happens with no one in 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 the public gallery, with the greenest, cheapest, most inexperienced prosecutors. Often it'll be legal aid barristers or, like, if the defendant has money, they'll get a good barrister. But, like, no one gives a shit about the most heinous criminal offending that anyone could ever dream up. And then this guy gets caught because his company has, like, not adequately fumigated chickpeas being imported to Australia. And then the room is full. Fucking blows up. Because all of a sudden, there's money. And all of a sudden, I'm arraigning a corporation instead of just a man. I'm arraigning, like, a corporation and a man. And he gets this, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars fine. And there's, like, two silks, one QC, like, four advising solicitors assistance for everyone and it's just like oh livid 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 Ooh. sorry yeah <laughs> sorry to take you back there no it's just <laughs> like but it's uh yeah and what my judge said to me with you know he's not a he's not a dick he's an incredible man he's wonderful um but you know what he said to me with like dark humor basically was that you know 12 year old girls don't have any money and it's like wow yep that's it's true yep true right chickpeas 
Yeah. Chickpeas. Oh, chickpeas. Um, given that this is such a feat of nonfiction and you're talking about your personal essays that you might be writing, mm. um, are you an avid reader of nonfiction? Are you always a writer of nonfiction? Mm. Or also fiction? Mm. Um, I don't know if I would be any good at fiction. Um, I will try. Cool. Yep. I will try probably for book three. I will try. Um, but I read mostly nonfiction. I feel like buying and reading a fiction book is too risky because you can buy a nonfiction book and even if it's badly written, you will learn something. But when I buy a fiction book, and then I read it if it's bad. I'm like, oh, no, I could have l- at least learned something by now. Um, which is silly, I know. <laughs> but but I find when fiction is good, it is the best. Who are some of those nonfiction authors that you look up to? Nonfiction authors. Mm. Some faves. Some faves. Um, Fiona Wright, obviously. Small right. Acts of Disappearance was a masterpiece. Very, very much looking forward to her next book, which is coming out soon. Um, obviously Helen Garner, but actually Helen Garner's short, shorter work is my favourite. Um, Everywhere I Look, for example, is my favourite of her books, even though it's like, you know, well, because it is a collection pieces. of her smaller pieces. Yeah. Um, I would say I've been... It's a really tough read, but Woman of Substances by Jenny Valentish um, really... There were just things I read in that book that um, really just resonated so hugely with me. Um, who else? I read The New Yorker a lot. Right. Which sounds wanky. <laughs> which is wanky. Um, but the long-form essays in The New Yorker teach me, like, so much. and are so well-written. Um, I read... I try to read, like, the quarterly essays. Oh, Anna Crean, duh. Oh, right. Yeah, like, Anna Crean, like, I read The Night Games and, like, was upset and sort of felt not comfortable with some of her coverage, like, of that trial, um, but with an overwhelming sense of, like, awe as Mm. to her, like, skills and ability to write. Well, you speak of... This is a good segue, because you speak of being in awe... Of Anna, mm. but I have to say for me and for so many other people who have read this book that that was the feeling the whole time. Oh, and so nice. as a way to wrap up the podcast, go and get your hands on this book. It's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and in any good bookstore. And it's crazy good. will change your life. Thank you so much, Bree. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for listening. <laughs>